Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In the upcoming show, learn more about the brave, reckless, and dangerous Filipino soldiers of fortune in Shanghai during the 1860s. This is Episode 2, The Manila Men Works of Shanghai. and tumbled streets of Shanghai in 1860, with civil war pacing like a wolf on the outskirts of the Treaty City, Frederick Townsend Ward was looking for a few good men. Good, of course, was a subjective term. A certain warlike ability was prioritized, as was previous job experience in breaking a few heads. Ward's previous crew had been scraped off the bottom of ship holes in the corners of sleazy bars a ramshackle assortment of -of out-of-work sailors and deserters on the run, all of them from the West. They proved to be too undisciplined for Ward's purposes. Previous experience in both the U.S. and French Army proved that Ward could be a little unruly himself, but it wasn't something he was looking for in his own private army. While scouting prospects on the Shanghai waterfront, Ward made the acquaintance of Vicente Macanaya, a 23-year-old who served in the Spanish consulate in Shanghai. He was part of its Cuerpo de Policia, or Police Corps, and earned a salary of $30 a month. He was also a known soldier of fortune. Charles Schmidt, an American serving under Ward, described him as a wildcat in battle. But Schmidt also wrote that he was a kind-hearted gentleman who was, quote-unquote, sober in his habits, quick in perception, frank, liberal to a fault, and with an eye always to duty. In short, Makanaya was just the sort of hired gun that Ward needed. The American persuaded him to become his aide-de-camp, and Vicente became the leader of an elite group of 200 soldiers in Ward's private army, a loyal corps of mercenaries made entirely of Manila men. The Manila man was a familiar sight in ports around the world. In the transcontinental galleon trade that stretched from the Philippine port city of Manila to Acapulco, Mexico, Indios made up two-thirds of the crew. Over the next 300 years, Many thousands of Filipino seafarers settled in faraway places. Mexico, California, Hawaii, Louisiana, New York, Cape Town, Australia. Others worked in fur trade crews in Chile, Alaska, or crewed American whaling ships taking off from the East Coast. The most famous book about whalers, Moby Dick, even gives a shout-out to these Manila men, with author Herman Melville writing how the Manila men were springing to their oars. You can check this passage out at the end of chapter 100, where Melville spells Manila with a double L. Of course, the Manila men were not all from the city. The Philippines, as a concept, did not exist outside the Las Islas Filipinas of musty Spanish maps and even mustier Spanish bureaucracy. It was the bustling, vibrant port city of Manila that was known around the world, 
a place so coveted that the British Admiralty conspired to invade and occupy the city in 1762. The name Manila became a shorthand for the Philippines and Manila Man for everyone who came from the archipelago. These Manila men were recruited by foreign ships. The British merchant Robert McMicking, perhaps an ancestor of the wealthy Ayala family that controls one of the Philippines' largest conglomerates, once wrote that Manila men were considered as quote-unquote highly capable crewmen of merchant vessels. Graciano Lopez Haina wrote in 1899 that, as far as he was aware, up to 20,000 Filipinos could be found living in the port cities of England, France, and the United States. Poor sailors, the Filipino nationalist wrote of them. He described them as simple people, frank and meek. Some Manila men took a far less peaceful career path in the high seas. In 1818, Manila men were part of the crew of the Santa Rosa, a pirate ship that invaded the Spanish colony of California. In 1863, during the American Civil War, a Manila man named Felix Flores, originally born in Panay, served in the Confederate steam-powered sloop of war known as the Alabama. Flores later jumped ship during one of its raiding missions and settled down in Calc Bay near Cape Town. Meanwhile, another massive civil war was taking place on the other side of the world, in China. The leader of the Taiping Rebellion was Hong Xiu Tsuen, a schoolteacher afflicted by visions sent from on high, urging him to rid China of its idol worship. Styling himself as the younger brother of Jesus Christ, Hong led a zealous band of converts who soon numbered in the tens of thousands. At first, his followers merely broke statues and icons in local shrines, but over time, it grew into something more. In the aftermath of the Opium Wars, China was reeling from economic depression, ethnic tensions, widespread inequality, banditry, and a Manchu-led government that seemed powerless to arrest the decline. By 1851, or eight years after he concluded that he was the son of God, Hong Xiu Tsuen's millenarian movement had escalated into open conflict. The tottering, autocratic Qing dynasty could not stop the uprising. Rebels, following the religion they called the Great Peace, occupied the ancient imperial capital of Nanjing, turning it into a so-called New Jerusalem. By 1860, conflict between the imperial forces and the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom threatened to engulf the glittering, decadent jewel of the Yangtze Delta, Shanghai. Oh Shanghai, Shanghai, that painful splinter on the side of the Qing Dynasty, the most famous of the treaty ports that were forcefully opened up to foreign trade after China lost the first opium war against Britain. Western powers gleefully poured into the already prosperous city and turned it into a bustling international settlement. 
even if the city was hundreds of kilometers away from the heartland of the Taiping Rebellion, the war marched northwards to the gates of Shanghai. The city got its first taste of the conflict when a Taiping-affiliated group named the Small Sword Society occupied the Chinese part of Shanghai from 1853 to 1855. But at the end of the decade, a great rebel army was preparing to march on the port city and conquer it for the Heavenly Kingdom. Into this chaotic time sailed in Frederick Townsend Ward. He was what was known as a filibuster, a globe-trotting American gun-for-hire in foreign shores. Ward had seen action in Mexico, in Crimea, and as part of the crew of the anti-pirate ship Confucius, a steamer in the Chinese coast that went fishing for raiders. He arrived in Shanghai at the perfect time. The imperial court was desperate. Unable to contain the Taiping Rebellion on their own, they began contracting foreign military forces to help fight their civil war for them. Mercenaries were the ideal solution. The Tsing government was unwilling to officially partner up with Western armies, even as their own forces were collapsing against the rebels. Mercs, on the other hand, they could disavow. This worked just fine for Frederick Townsend Ward. As long as the money would keep coming in, he would do the Chinese government's dirty work. Two Shanghai merchants, as well as the city governor, funded these operations. Under the guise of a strictly merchant undertaking, in no way associated with the Tsing government, Ward set up the Shanghai Foreign Arms Corps. As we said in the beginning of this podcast, Ward's first batch of adventurers were a slovenly bunch. In June 1860, he led them into battle against the Taiping stronghold of Songjiang, around 40 kilometers from the Shanghai waterfront, but they were badly beaten. Ward must have known about the swaggering, dangerous reputation of the Filipinos living in Shanghai. A writer who wrote Ward's biography in 1992 described them as quote-unquote, handy on-board ships, and more than a little troublesome on land. Shanghai newspapers would run reports of stabbings in boarding houses run by Manila men. They were also described as brave and fierce fighters, plentiful in Shanghai and always eager for action. They'd get that action in Ward's private army. Vicente Macanaya, headed up the Americans' personal bodyguards, an all-Filipino crew who fought at Frederick's side at the front lines of every battle. Just one month after his defeat, Ward returned to the fortress of Songjiang, but this time with Makanaya and other Manila men in his ranks. The mercenaries were armed with Sharps carbine rifles, which were American-made single-shot firearms deadly at long range. But the Filipinos also came armed with another weapon, the nasty, sinuous Chris Blade. This time, the attack on Songjiang was successful. Into his ragtag bunch of expendables, 
Ward injected the discipline he'd picked up in his brief stint at the military academy, as well as his time serving in the French army. Whether they were from China or the Philippines or whatever country they'd sailed in from, Ward outfitted his soldiers with Western-style military uniforms and modern guns. He gave them the artillery they needed to break the walls of Taiping fortresses. With the help of two American officers, he also trained them to respond to bugle calls as well as orders shouted in English. But Makanaya was on a different level of warrior entirely. He liked hand-to-hand -hand fighting, his fearsome blade getting personally, recklessly acquainted with the Taiping rebels. In one battle, a story about him goes, he survived volley after volley of gunfire and emerged from the fight with his clothes torn and riddled with bullet holes. But Vicente himself was unscathed and his fellow Manila men in Ward's army began to believe that Makanaya was bulletproof. Filipinos died on the field and when they did, Makanaya would bring in new recruits until the Corps of Bodyguards would return to its full strength of 200 men. But he himself would return in battle after battle, sword bloody from all the Taiping rebels he'd slain. In the siege of Tsingpu in 1862, Frederick Townsend Ward made a bet among all his soldiers. When the cannons breached the walls that protected the town, whoever would be the first one through the breach would be rewarded. The artillery sounded, the walls came down, and the first to stride across the smoldering ruin of fortifications was none other than Vicente Macanaya. Ward's army became so successful that even the imperial court took notice. They captured important towns, broke through key fortresses, and pushed back the invading Taiping rebels at least 48 kilometers away from the city. Inside the walls of the palace at Beijing, the Shanghai Foreign Corps would come to be known by another Chinese name, the Ever-Victorious Army. Slowly, Frederick Townsend Ward began to assimilate himself into Chinese society. He married the daughter of one of the merchants backing his operation and gave up his American citizenship. He was given the red button, denoting one of the highest class of mandarins in the empire, as well as the rank of green standard colonel in the Tsing army. But he never gave up his barbarian ways entirely. The imperial court could never get him to shave his forehead or wear his hair in a long braided queue in true Manchu fashion. Unlike Makanaya though, Ward was not bulletproof. One month after the capture of Tsingpu, Frederick Townsend Ward was killed in action. Who would succeed Ward now as commander of the ever-victorious army? Reminiscing about the events that transpired after their leader's death, Charles Schmidt wrote that many of the soldiers actually wanted Vicente Macanaya to take the post. Macanaya was Ward's aide-de-camp, the warrior who fought by their leader's side, the soldier many believed was more than capable of commanding them now that he was dead. Schmidt once said 
that Makanaya fought like a demon. What better man then than to lead the fight against the forces of the Son of God? But even Schmidt had to concede that, being a Manila man, there was little chance that Vicente would be named commander. Instead, the imperial court asked a British officer named Charles Gordon to take up the post. Gordon had fought against the Chinese in the Second Opium War barely three years before. Now, with permission of the British Parliament, he was on their side, leading Chinese troops and training Chinese men. The ward-style militia soon transitioned into a more official British-fronted army. The days of filibusters and mercenaries and adventurers were over. The Chinese turned to career soldiers in Western professional armies to lead their troops and break, once and for all, the Taiping Kingdom of Heavenly Peace. The unstoppable momentum of the Taiping Rebellion had slowed after the rebels' lightning victories in Nanjing, in Anhui, in Suzhou. As the conflict pushed eastwards, their forces were driven back by the ever-victorious army and other Western-trained militias. In New Jerusalem, the leadership was split apart by purges and infighting. Inside the Heavenly Palace, Hong Xiu Tsuen, the Son of God and younger brother of Jesus Christ, retreated further and further into his religious mania. Provincial warlords, newly empowered by an imperial dynasty on the wane, struck blow after blow against the rebels. Qing forces surrounded Nanjing and for two years laid siege to the heavenly capital. Running out of food, Hong ordered his followers to eat manna, then died of food poisoning soon after. Some say it was suicide. With the collapse of Nanjing, the Taiping Rebellion came to an end in 1864. It was said to be the largest civil war in human history, with more than 20 million dead. In its aftermath, China would be changed forever. And what of Vicente Macanaya and the rest of the Manila men mercs of Shanghai? No one knows. They pass out of recorded history. Perhaps they died in the field of battle. Perhaps they settled down in China. Perhaps they sailed on to a new land to take up arms once again and fight in yet another war. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. References used in this episode were 1. The chapter Tales of Manila Men from Resil B. Mojares' book Isabelo's Archive, published by Anvil in 2013. 2. Filibustero, Rizal, and the Manila Men of the 19th Century by Filomeno V. Aguilar, published in the journal Philippine Studies. Volume 59, Number 4, in 2011. Number 3. The Use of Foreign Soldiers During the Taiping Rebellion by Alex Guzoles, published in Emory and Divorce of World History Number 2, 
in 2008. Number 4. Stationary Bandits, State Capacity, and the Malthusian Transition The Lasting Impact of the Taiping Rebellion by L. Colin Xu and Li Yang of the World Bank Development Research Group Number 5. Hong Xiu Tsuen and the Subversion of Christianity by Matthew Smalars of LaSalle University Published in the journal The Histories, Volume 2, Issue 2 the Colonial Department was created and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.